So, you want to save the world with clean energy? Make money doing it? Confused about the economic and technical realities of residential and commercial solar, batteries, heat pumps, EVs? Want the real-world scoop on new energy technologies, not manufacture hype? Then tune in to the Weekly Energy Show, hosted by Barry Cinnamon. Insights from Barry's 40-plus years in the solar and energy industry will help you understand the future ways we'll generate and consume energy. And now, here's Barry. Welcome to this week's Energy Show. This week's show is a post-mortem of COP28. I'm going to tell it like it is, at least the way I think it is. In a nutshell, we're really screwed. It's kind of not making a lot of progress as far as the global warming. At COP28, it was agreed that countries will, quote, contribute to transitioning away from fossil fuels and energy systems in a just, orderly, and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. By the way, this is a part of a 21-page report that reads much more like a legal brief. It's really not clear. But the good news is this is the first ever COP28 reference to possibly reducing fossil fuel use. By the way, we call it COP. COP stands for Congress of the Parties. This is the 28th time they've had one of these. Unfortunately, this is not an explicit reduction of fossil fuels. It only talks about energy systems, not you know manufacturing or steel or cement. There's no hard commitment, there's no action deadline, there's no timing, and they can interpret the science the way they choose. So basically, fossil fuel companies and countries will continue to burn fossil fuels as they see fit. But this podcast, I don't want it to be a rant. This is not just a rant. I want everyone to focus on practical things we can do to reduce the impacts of global warming, but just kind of understand what we're up against, what we've been up against, and resistance is increasing. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is this thing sponsored by the United Nations, and they meet annually to measure progress and to negotiate multilateral responses to climate change. This all started with the Paris Climate Accord Agreement in 2015, and the goal was to limit global warming by 2 degrees C, and ideally 1.5 degrees C. 194 countries ratified this agreement, all except for Iran, Libya, and Yemen. The United States ratified it also, but then President Trump withdrew from the, the agreement, and President Biden re-entered the agreement. So that's just kind of a little bit of background. But let's see what the trends are. It's all about global warming and CO2 emissions. Yes, there's other contributing factors. Yes, it's kind of complicated, but oh, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure it out. So looking at this graph, it doesn't take a physician to diagnose the illness that we're trying to cure. <laughs> the illness is global warming. The planet is sick. And the cause of that illness is by the vast majority, CO2 emissions. And the cure to that illness is pretty straightforward. We got to stop burning fossil fuels. But like smokers addicted to nicotine, with the tobacco industry friends happily selling smokers cartons and cartons of cigarettes and advertising like crazy, no matter how ugly the pictures are in the pack of cigarettes, as the tobacco industry business booms and the smokers die, the same thing's happening. We won't need a pathologist to determine the cause of global warming. The earth needs to stop smoking fossil fuels. So you look at this graph. This is the global warming graph, telling it like it is. The earth has already warmed by 1.2 degrees C. 2023 is the hottest year in recorded history. 
And since 1981, the Earth's been warming at the rate of about 0.18 degrees C per year. So that basically means that it gets another degree hotter every five and a half years. Now, you have to remember that this global warming is a system. It's affecting the whole planet. It's a system that responds very slowly to changes. It's kind of like a single locomotive pulling an enormous freight train. It takes many miles to speed up from a stop. And then it takes many miles to slow down. So because of the continuing expanding CO2 emissions, we're still speeding up. There's no sign yet of tapering emissions sufficiently or lowering the CO2 concentrations to slow down global warming. So it's still getting worse. And then we have a cliff. At least we've defined this cliff. Unless emissions go down significantly and immediately, we will hit the Earth would have warmed by 1.5 degrees C by around 19, since 1900 in 2026, like three years. And we're going to hit three degrees C in 2035 and maybe sooner because we're still accelerating those emissions. So you kind of take a step back and say, oh, this is a really big problem. What do we do? There's two types of actions we can take. One action is mitigation, kind of reducing it. And the other action is adaptation, kind of, all right, well, you know, what do we do about it? So mitigation actions are those that reduce the CO2 in the atmosphere. These are efforts to slow down global warming and eventually reverse it. Now we got to reverse it, otherwise the temperature is going to keep going up or stay really high, which is bad. So the most obvious and effective way to mitigate this global warming problem is to stop using fossil fuels, which generate CO2. Duh. It's by far the major cause of the problem. And that's why, if you look at what are we going to do, the Earth has to stop smoking. Now, since we're all smoking fossil fuels and it's growing, we also have to do something called adaptation. So the adaptation are actions that we take to cope with the warmer Earth. Things like the higher air and water temperatures, things like sea level rising, things like more disruptive storms. The reason why we have worse storms is because when the air gets hotter, it holds more moisture and you get more rain, more hurricanes, more storms like that. kind of reminds me, this is kind of going back, kind of reminds me of a Sam Kittison skit. Sam was a hysterical comedian, and he had a skit about actually eating no food. And he was screaming at people just to move to where there was more food is. Well, we can just also have people move to where the warming isn't bad. There's a lot of places on the earth that are basically going to be impossible to sustain human life without a phenomenal amount of air conditioning, which right now is burning fossil fuels like crazy. All right, so let's talk about what these paths are to mitigate fossil fuel emissions. And there's three what I call false paths to mitigating global warming. These technologies are portrayed as solutions. They're going to fix the problem. One of them is nuclear power. The other is something called carbon sequestration and storage, or CSS. And the third is direct air capture of CO2. I've talked about these technologies in the past. We're going to go into another energy show on them shortly. But just kind of in background, basically, none of these technologies have any chance over the next 20 years from even making a dent in our CO2 emissions. Nuclear power plants 
take over 20 years to build in the U.S., and they're extremely expensive. They're so expensive that no utilities want to even commit to any new ones. Now, there are a number of nuclear plants in the U.S. whose life can be extended, and, you know, I mean, I was kind of originally a no-nuke guy, but we really got to do everything we can, and we don't want to lose the production of some of these plants, so that's good. And there's, indeed, long-term potential for nuclear outside of the U.S. There's lots of research going into small reactors that are going to be cheaper, modular, whatever, I guarantee at least 20 years away from even getting the first one (laughs) approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Second, now the second group, carbon sequestration and storage and direct air capture. The problem is simply that they're thermodynamically impossible. Basically what happens is if you burn fossil fuels and energy is released from those fossil fuels and that energy is released when you break these hydrocarbon bonds, in order to put the CO2 back, it takes more energy to do that. So yes, you can do it. It's practical, but it's economically impossible. In other words, the energy that's provided from a system that burns fossil fuels and then takes the CO2 out and captures it again, it ends up being very inefficient. Just putting that CO2, compressing it, putting it underground, putting it into a solid, it just takes a lot of energy. So you know, for example, if you were to take coal and burn coal, you might be able to generate coal power for 20 cents a kilowatt hour. But if you then have to say to that coal, well, we're going to put the CO2 and save it and store it away, you're looking at 40 or 50 cents a kilowatt hour for that energy. These are just rough numbers. It makes it completely unprofitable to pursue those things. So when I look at why are we pursuing these technologies, yeah, it's great research and almost every single one of the plants that they built of CCS and DAC, direct air capture, they're just way far away from being scalable. The main reason why we're pushing them so hard is that these technologies are promoted by the fossil fuel companies because if they work 30 years from now or 40 years from now or 50 years from now, then they continue burning fossil fuels until then, at which point we're going to be looking at 5 degrees C temperature rise. Plus, there's no really good permanent way to store gaseous CO2. That's, you know, you pull the CO2 out of these systems, you compress it. What we're doing right now is we're using it to enhance oil and gas recovery. We're pumping it underground, pumping out more fossil fuels. And I kind of worry that you look at all the oil and gas wells that are uncapped, that are leaking, that you put all this CO2 underground and then, you know, somebody's not really careful 10, 20, 30 years from now, the well opens up, boom, all that gas goes back into the air. All right, so not big fans of these three things. And then don't even get me started with planting billions or trillions of trees. We neither have the land to plant all those trees. You got to remember, parts of the world, we're still cutting down trees. That land is expensive, so we don't have that land, nor do we have the 50 to 100 years of time that it takes to capture that CO2 into trees. And you also have to remember, eventually those trees are going to decompose and the CO2 is going to go back. Now... There are some practical, scalable, and economic mitigation paths, ways to reduce the production of fossil fuels that really work. Substituting for fossil fuels, there's a better way to create energy. There's a better way to create process heat. And these will also dramatically reduce worldwide CO2 emissions. So instead of burning the fossil fuels and trying to clean them up, we use another way of generating energy. And these technologies, they're scaling up rapidly. No surprise, a little bit self-centered. Solar, batteries, wind power, they work great. 
and they're scaling super fast. As you can see from this graph, solar and wind are the fastest way in the U.S. for us to be generating power. Other countries are doing even better. Okay, so here's why we're so fundamentally screwed. Do you really believe that fossil fuel countries, countries that are you know, base their economies on fossil fuels, like a lot of the Arabian countries, Russia, even the U.S., and companies like the oil companies, Exxon, Chevron, etc., do you believe they really want to stop selling their products on which their economies are based? No way. That's why we're so fundamentally screwed. The fossil fuel phase-out agenda that's being dictated by fossil fuel companies and countries completely dilutes the effectiveness. So, so this COP28, kind of getting back to COP28, Congress of the Parties, was held in Dubai this year. It was presided over Sultan Ahmed Al-Jabbar. All right, nice gentleman, I'm sure. But you got to remember, his day job is as head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. And at COP28, he stated that there was no science indicating that a phase-out of fossil fuels is needed to restrict global heating to 1.5 degrees C. And OPEC, of which they're a member, had issued a letter to its members and backers on December 6th of 2023 to oppose any language targeting fossil fuels in a COP28 deal. Now, we did get some little things in there, as I mentioned, but it's just, you know, it's not what they want to do. It's not what makes sense. And it's not literally, literally what keeps the lights on in a lot of these countries. Antonio Gutierrez, Secretary General of the United Nations, told COP28 delegates, I mean, this is the United Nations guy that's kind of sponsoring these COP28 programs. He said, and this is obvious, the science is clear. The 1.5 degree C limit is only possible if we ultimately stop burning all fossil fuels, not reducing, not abating, not transitioning, not phasing out, but stopping them with a very clear time frame. So Fox, the Fox, or Fox, well, let's just say the Fox, because I'm using the metaphor, not the network. So the Fox is guarding the fossil fuel hen house. And this Fox has stated that it has no plans to stop eating chicken in the hen house. Putting aside the metaphors, fossil fuel industry has mobilized to prevent producing and burning fossil fuels. They don't want any transition. They don't want any phase out. They're going to make all kinds of stories up about how it's going to be fine. But they got to keep pumping oil and gas. That's how they make all their money. That's how these countries are keeping the lights on. So the fossil fuel dominance of the agenda is going to continue as long as fossil fuel economics are so favorable. There's going to be continuing efforts by the fossil fuel companies and countries to pursue impractical technologies like carbon sequestration and storage, CSS, and like direct air capture. They're going to say, hey, we can clean this up. So this is the technology. It works. Of course, if you look at the state of the technology and the ramp up, it's not really going to work for another 50 years. So the end result is we're stalling these hard energy choices. We're delaying or diverting things that will really work like solar and wind and batteries, in favor of oil and gas drilling. And it's good for the oil and gas drilling countries, including the U.S., Russia, and the Arab states. But it's bad for the rest of the world since they must buy these fossil fuel products. And it's bad because the global warming is going to keep going up. You think about these countries like Tuvalu or some of the other you know, countries that are you know, very, very low right near sea level. They're going to be underwater. What are you going to do? You can't build a dike around a, a country that's going to be underwater. It's not going to work. Now, there is a little good news. The good news is the final COP28 deal also included a pact to triple global renewable energy capacity by 2030. And that's a slam dunk to achieve that 
for distributed rooftop solar in the U.S. Is if we have the will to do it. It's not really going to happen with large-scale utility installations because the transmission lines for these systems, you can put in a huge utility solar farm in a few years, but it takes at least 10 years to put in the transmission lines for that. So a lot of the utility growth, which we can achieve, is not going to happen because you need wires connecting those plants in faraway places to where the people need the power. And we're trying to shorten the time frame for the transmission, but it's not happening. So I kind of look at this and say, all right, I'm not ranting that much. Sorry if you do hear a little bit of a tinge of a rant. There's four things we can do. Number one, don't vote for politicians who support fossil fuels. Number two, don't vote for politicians who accept financial contributions from utilities because they want utility-scale solar and transmission lines, and that's too expensive and not fast enough. Continue all of our efforts to expand rooftop solar and storage on every sunny rooftop and install your own solar power system. So let's talk about these things in a little bit more detail. Um, and, and I'm candidly, I'm supporting the solar and storage industry. Why? Because... <laughs> For the last 25 years, it's been blatantly clear to me that that's the best solution, and it's become even clearer now when we see what's happening with both the global warming and we see how fast electricity rates coming up. So first, don't vote for politicians who support fossil fuels. They're out there soliciting your votes. They're really good. But you know, drill, baby, drill on a national basis, you know, oil companies, it's good for oil and gas companies in the short term. It's really bad for our children and grandchildren. So just don't vote for those politicians. That's all you can really do. You can also definitely not contribute to them. So we'll talk about that in a sec. Second, don't vote for politicians who are against widespread and ubiquitous deployment of solar and storage. Like, you know, that's solar and storage. Utility scale, great. Commercial, great. Residential and commercial rooftop solar, even greater because it's the fastest way to generate that power on the buildings that need it. It's the fastest and cheapest way to do it. So for example... California politicians who are in favor of utility solar and storage are the ones that are dominating the agenda. They're the ones that basically decided to kill net metering too. That's why there's 17,000 unemployed solar contractors and employees in California, and that number is growing. And, and California has changed its path from being the leader in solar and storage to only being the leader in utility-scale solar and storage and basically abandoning what you as homeowners and business owners can do to reduce your own costs. So very specifically, most of the California Democrats from Governor Newsom on down took contributions from the utilities and from their employees of over $18 million last year in 2022. Governor Newsom took $5 million alone from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, who almost exclusively works for utilities. And they basically convinced Governor Newsom, I mean, not in writing, but this is just the way politics work, to kill rooftop solar and storage for homes and businesses. We're going to go into detail on that in another podcast. That's definitely a rant. Okay, third, for my brethren in the solar and storage business, continue your pioneering hard work to triple the size of our industry. Solar is by far and away the fastest and cheapest source of energy generation and is destined to continue that trend. Costs for solar keep going down. Now, costs for utility-scale solar... They keep going down too, but the cost for the transmission lines to get it to you are going through the roof and are taking forever. Okay, finally, the best thing you can do is install your own rooftop solar and storage system. There's lots of companies that do it. They'll be objective. They'll help you. It may not always make sense. Heck, if you don't have a sunny roof, forget about it. But if you have the roof space, 
in almost every case, it's cost-effective to power your home, your company, and your vehicles with your own solar generating system. Plus, if you put in batteries, you get backup power during the next blackout. All right, that's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at energyshow.com biz and listen to the podcasts.